Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today is our 140th show, and today's guest is Christian Shivago. Love that name, as I mentioned to her, because one of my favorite movies is Dr. Shivago, author of Roadmap to Revenue. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. Glad to be here. And um, so let's start off with you telling us a little bit about your professional background. Okay, uh, I was the first woman, as far as I know, to sell machine shop tools in the United States back when I was 17. And I failed miserably uh, because basically they said, okay, you're wearing a mini skirt. Here's a catalog, you know, go sell. <laughs> and uh, one of my first calls was, uh, well, not first call. I've been doing it a little while, but I went to a company and I was down in San Diego. And this old guy came out, you know, the shop manager and said, okay, honey, why are you here? And I told him and uh, he said, okay, well, tell me how your drill bit is better than the one that I'm using now. And I didn't have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) I was so humiliated, you know, and I was a senior in high school and I was like, oh man, this is terrible. So I went outside and I definitely remember the moment I stood outside of my old car and decided I was going to learn everything I could about tech and selling. And I've been doing it ever since. But yet you um, you went to school for music, correct? I did. I was going to be a teacher, but I was also a performer most of my life. Um, so and as I mentioned to you, my whole family was in show business. It's not a fun business, though. I don't enjoy the people. And I really at one point had a choice um, singing, which I did really well. And I loved doing it or helping people with their businesses, which I loved even more. So I stuck with the, with the selling anyway. So then I had a number of sales and marketing jobs, um, moved up to Silicon Valley, um, met my husband. We started an ad agency in Silicon Valley in 1979, believe it or not. We did that for 12 years. And then the Macintosh came out. And I said, you know what? They're all going to go in house and I'm going to help them. And he was doing our graphics. He was an engineer artist combination. Um, So he retired and started making things like these speakers I was telling you about behind me. Um, Boats, speakers, telescopes. He made all kinds of things. And I just started being a revenue coach. So I helped CEOs and entrepreneurs make more money by understanding what their customers wanted to buy from them and how they wanted to buy it. And I became an expert on the customer's buying process, which is what my book's all about. I do a lot of speaking about it. And uh, I think I was one of the first people to basically identify the buying journey is more important than the selling journey. (laughs) Uh, And then in 2017, I opened up uh, a digital marketing company because I saw all these wonderful businesses that were really good at what they did that were just getting killed by digitally um, savvy competitors. And so we really help companies that are two to 50 million and get their digital marketing where it should be based on, you know, how good they are with their products and services. And I've been doing that since 2017. We have a team of about 20 people um, virtual company. Love it. Absolutely love it. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, another agency that you built. Yep. So talk about why you wrote this book. I wrote the book because I was, uh, every time I'd take on a new client, I would interview the CEO and everybody and say, you know, what do you think is important to your customers? And they had a list. And then I went out and interviewed the customers and the list was completely different every single time. So all of their marketing was off track. They were not giving customers what they wanted, making it easy for them to buy. So I would then focus on what I found that they were doing properly, 
in the research. I do um, telephone or now Zoom info um, or Zoom uh, interviews, uh, record the conversation, transcribe it, put it in a report where everything's categorized by subject, so it's anonymous, and then I do a summary and recommendations report. And I have done this, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of customers, I worked for hundreds of companies, and it just became a really good way of finding out what you really need to do. And uh, so I wrote a book about it. I gave all the secrets in the book. I tell you how to get the interviews, what to ask, the open-ended questions to get them to talk. It's not a survey, it's a conversation. And uh, it's a formula, it works. And it, it, I don't care how much the digital world has changed marketing 100%, which it has. Um, people are still people. They buy the way they buy. And the most wonderful thing about this is you can interview five to seven people of a given type and get bankable answers. Because they all you, basically say the same thing. Yeah, I, I do a lot of this work and I agree with you. And I agree with what I read in this book. And found by doing those, I call them call them confessionals because I do it by phone instead of Zoom, so they don't yeah. have to look at me. And it's like I'm a no, priest. No, I don't tell do me, video. Yeah, we yeah. don't do video. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and then they end up telling me everything. Uh, yeah. In the book, you write that this isn't meant to be a silver bullet antidote, but a system. What do you mean by that? Well, so many books are one idea that then, and a lot of examples. I mean, I've read. I don't know how many hundreds of business books over the years. And I, I, I sort of get disgusted with that. My goal was to give people tools that they could take back and just put to work right away. You read the book, you get it. I go into the buying process for different types of products and services based on the amount of scrutiny that the person applies to the purchase, which is very important. Um, and basically it's a recipe. It's a, it's a prescription. So uh, that's why I wrote the book. I, I had gotten to the point where I knew I had enough to be absolutely prescriptive. And that's what the book is. It's an instruction set. I found it to be very practical and logical. Uh, so which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you come on. And I like the book. Uh, how has the pandemic uh, changed sales? Well, it's changed sales in the same way that it's changed our lives. So people ended up working at home. So that's a little different. It's harder to get in touch with people now than it was if you're doing outbound sales, which don't really work anymore anyway. I really think that marketing should bring in good leads, not just any leads, but good leads. That's what we do for our clients. And then it's up to the company to have the right kind of person to help that customer buy. And I have one client who has totally drunk the Kool-Aid and uh, he's hired customer service people instead of salespeople. And they're just naturally helpful folks. And they their sales have gone through the roof. I mean, their biggest problem is, is meeting demand. I have a number of clients that have that problem now. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. Um, but that, that whole idea of being there for the person, and then they also reach out to prior customers, see how they're doing, checking in with them, and they make a lot of sales from those as well. So it's really understanding that people, I, I, pandemic or not, they're using the internet to do their research, they're getting in touch with you, and now we have tools where you can see who visited your site as they're visiting it, and then you can contact them and you have a whole bunch of information about them. We're using a system that does that. So you can really be into the buying process and get right in and then get helpful. It works. Uh, why do you say social media is not the best way to get prospects to uh, know you or drive business? And what's the best way to use social media to drive sales? Because especially the under 40 generation really thinks social media is everything. Yes, there is definitely a generational gap here. I'm actually working with two companies at the moment that have that problem where the older people, say over 40, know uh, the company or they know the type of product they're selling and the younger ones have never even heard of it. Um, so I'm working with them to get out into the TikTok, Instagram, you know, those markets. Now, I will say this. 
B2C, business to consumer, can sell using social. No question about it. B2B, business to business, it's really more of a, uh, a checking thing. So while people are deciding if they want to do business with that company, they will go to their feeds, they'll click on their little icons on their site, and they'll go out to their feeds and they'll ask themselves, how long has it been since anybody's posted? What are they talking about? Are they interested in helping me? Is it helpful information? Um, are they asleep at the switch? They haven't posted for you know, how many years or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of little indicators that convince them that this company's on top of things and moving and with it or not. A question from the audience. Since your book was published in 2011, how might your book be more impactful in today's selling environment? Well, it's a good question. You know, being in the tech business, I knew that things would change. And I knew the book had to be evergreen. So I was very careful writing that book to make sure that I didn't make it dated. So, and I'm happy to say that um, in a, about a year ago, we did uh, an audible version of the book. And so I had to proof it again. I mean, I proofed it 18 times after I wrote it uh, before it was published, because that's what you have to do. And I had five other people proof it and so on. We had one typo. I think it was, I should have put .au at the end of a, uh, a URL and I did, I said .com. So that was the only mistake. Um, but uh, everything that I talk about in that book applies to everything that's happening now because I focused on the humans more than the technology. Now I did say phone interviews in there. Um, now you can use Zoom, obviously, and I would use Zoom uh, audio only, as I mentioned earlier. But otherwise, everything in there is the same. Yeah, I felt that everything was timeless that you put in there based on my own experiences uh, of doing it. And I find that when I have done Zoom interviews, the people are not as forthcoming as they are when it's just audio. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, you write about mistakes people make when developing their website. What are the most common mistakes and what are things that people overlook? Uh, the, the most common mistake is making the big mistake, which is thinking that you know what your customer wants and you're guessing. And guessing is fatal. I can just, it's if you assume that you know what your customer wants and how they want to buy, it's fatal. You might die slowly, but you will die. Um, so, uh, see, what was the question again you were asking me about? I, I, I was asking you about websites. Oh, right. And, so that's and the mistakes big thing. that people make. Yeah. When somebody comes to your site, they need to find themselves the minute they come in. I mean, within seconds, they have to say, oh, good. They get me. I know what we're talking about. You know, they know what I want and how I'm trying to approach this and the problem I'm trying to solve. And they don't go into great detail about the problem I'm trying to solve because I know that problem already. I know it better than the person who wrote the copy. So it's just immediately they come in, they see it. And, and in fact, on our website, the first thing up on top is we help you sell the way your customers want to buy. That's what we do. Which I think so, is a great slogan. Yeah, thanks. Well, it's just the truth. By the way, I have a, um, a famous saying about branding, which is branding is the promise that you make, but your brand is the promise that you keep. And it's usually a, oh, they're, they're good at this, but they're not so good at that kind of statement. And you need to know those two things so you can highlight the first one and fix the second one in the background. Um. How important is the graphical look and feel of a website? Because, you know, you can go on GoDaddy and you can go and create something uh, basic but reasonably good. So how important is the graphical look and feel? It's only slightly secondary to the message. The message has to get them right away. And if you have the right message, they'll forgive you for a little bit of non-professionalism. But honestly, 
there's no excuse now because we have templates in the back end of WordPress. There are a million beautiful templates that you can use. There, it's absolutely no excuse for having a bad looking site. You shouldn't but have it, anybody hard coding a site right now. But a template's fine to use. Yes, it is. It makes the site a little more bloated. There's more code there than you need, but it's it's perfectly usable and any good designer will will use it properly. As long as it's clean uh, right. with the good content. Right. Uh, why do you why do you rate that marketing and sales have nothing to do with uh, what your buyer is trying to do? Well, the buyer doesn't care who's selling to them. They don't care if it's a marketer or a salesperson or the owner of the company or uh, a customer service person. They just want help. Now, one of the things that you didn't see in the book, because I've come up with this concept afterwards, I have a guide on my site called the Guide to Mindset-Driven Marketing. As an extension of this whole book idea and buying process, I realized that the most important thing is the customer's mindset when they set out to buy. And that consists of their desires, their concerns, and their questions. So you have to know what they're looking for. You have to know what they've really been burned by. And there's no virgin environment. Everybody's been burned by somebody somehow. And some somehow they've been disappointed or they're worried that something's going to be disappointing. You have to know what those are and address them. And then answer their questions. I mean, if you go to Amazon, it's getting a little better now, but it's hard to find the dimensions of a product. And sometimes there's something with an inside and an outside, and you need to know how big the inside is, and they don't answer that. So brilliant of Bezos to ha have the customers answer questions for each other. And very often they are questions that manufacturers should have answered. Super smart. Those are the things that if you address those three things, their, desi their desires, their concerns, and their questions, you're going to sell more. You write about barriers to sales and how companies make it difficult for customers to buy. Uh, what are some of the biggest and easily avoidable mistakes? Well, one of them is voicemail. And my husband and I helped introduce email, voicemail, software. I mean, everything that we're using now, we helped introduce in Silicon Valley. And I really kind of kick myself sometimes for voicemail because it turned into press one for this, press two for that. And if we don't have your option, well, we're sorry, goodbye. I mean, terrible misuse of voicemail. And it's a good way to avoid um, people. So that's one of the barriers. Other barriers are going back to this idea that they don't even understand what the customer wants. So the customer doesn't even find themselves um, They make it too hard to get in touch with them. I mean, again, you know, you go to the web and you, you're, you saw somebody, you want to work with them, you've decided to do something with them and the phone number doesn't work or the contact information is too hard to find, or you fill out a web form and they never get back to you. I mean, those are basics. Don't you find it frustrating? I mean, even really large uh, companies don't have a way to talk to customer service. Like I had a problem with LinkedIn. I got a hacker broke in. Literally, there was almost no way for me to get to him. I had to fill out this form and pray that somebody contacted me. But if I want to buy an ad from them, easy. You know, they have a phone number, somebody picks up. But if I got a problem, then they don't pick up. And Microsoft, there's no way to reach somebody. It used to be they had great customer service. Dell, all of them. And now these are, you know, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar companies that provide you with no service but are glad to take your money. What, what do you advise these companies about this? And how I do you miss, feel about it? I really miss the days. And I'm not somebody who clings to the past. I rush headfirst into the future, but I really miss the days when some nice, it usually was a woman, so I'll be sexist, whatever, but some nice old lady would pick up the phone and say, oh, okay, I know what you want. You need to speak to Bob. You know, I mean, we've hidden behind our technology. We've made it hard for people to get in touch. And I understand why, because there's a lot of people trying to get in touch with us that we don't want to get in touch with us. My cell phone 
number is my business number. And I do that because I want to answer the phone and just be right there if somebody wants to talk to me and get some help. You just, you can't use technology as, as a fence and hide inside. Yeah, it's even the AI, way. even the AI they're using, and they ask you to type in the question, you find that <laughs> rarely does it have the answer that you're looking for. That's right. And you are even more frustrated and thinking, oh, my God, I wish there was an alternative to this particular company or, uh, you know, why why is they looking this as a cost savings for them when it's really ruining the customer relationship? GoDaddy, they're fabulous. You can they have their phone number right on the home page. You call them. Somebody answers 24 seven. Same with constant contact. Same thing. But so many of the others don't have. Uh, that ability. And I'd look and, and say, I'm not going to do business with anybody. I'd rather have a little bit lesser product, but deal with someone who thinks customer service is important to them. I totally agree with you. And I do think chat, which has become standard, yeah, if you use it properly, really can be wonderful. You get a question answered. You don't have to be on the phone and dedicated. You can be doing something on your computer. Somebody pops in. If as long as it's a real person, the AI exactly stuff, as you said, you can go through a five-minute conversation with a bot, and then he'll say, Oh, you know what? I can't, I can't answer your question. I'll have to give it to somebody else. So what have you done? Your first interaction with the company has been a disappointment. Yeah, yeah. I uh, you know, and I've seen that with orbits. It used to be they had live agents. Now I just go directly to American Airlines because I know I can get somebody if some, if there's a problem. I avoid uh, orbits whenever I can from buying from them. Yeah. Um, in search engine optimization, worth spending uh, on if all your competitors are hiring experts and get them on the front first page? Because I, I never quite understand that. If everybody's hiring the expert to get you on the first page, how are, how's that actually, how are you actually getting on the first page if everybody else has hired the same people? Well, first of all, that industry is filled with people who lie. I'm sorry, but that's what they're doing. They're lying or they're using unethical practices to get you on the first page. I see SEO as a slow game. It does work. I have one client who has one article that we wrote for them on one particular aspect of their product, brings in 3,000 people a month. Wow. Period. Okay, it's just, it's the biggest, biggest draw for them. And we update the article and keep it fresh and uh, for Google. So Google cares about recency and frequency. Good content, relevant content written by smart human beings that's actually helpful, will get you on the first page. I've done it for a number of clients. But it takes time and you have to be willing to pay for that good content. And that marketing blah, blah stuff that doesn't really say anything. I mean, I've written in the, the instructions for IBM for their marketing people. And then they went to India, no offense, no offense to India, but I couldn't sell properly to Indians because I'm not an Indian. And the same thing here, you can't properly sell to Americans with people from another country. So they asked me to evaluate the copy that they had done. It was so bad. I was sitting in an airplane reading this content and it was, I was, I had tears in my eyes because it was just so, it was like a noun and a bunch of adjectives and a noun and a bunch of adjectives. And then nobody was addressing what the customer really cared about. So it was just blah, 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 blah. So this, this, you have to write good content. And I've written a lot in my time. I have a copywriting background and I've got copywriters working for me and a managing editor. It's very important to write good, solid, helpful content. And if you do that, Google sees that it's helpful and they, they put it on the first page and then a lot more people come and then it becomes an even more important article. So you can stay on top page one for years with good, evergreen, wonderful content. Now, the other way to get on the top of page one where there's only 10 natural organic spaces is to advertise. I mean, Google Ads does, they do work if you do them properly. Again, the content has to be good. You have to send people to, 
to useful content, so on. But it does work. We bring in a steady stream of leads for people that way. What does good content look like? And when you say that, what do you mean? That's a good question. I think you know it when you see it. In other words, if you look for information in Google about something and you click around and you see something that is obviously just formulaic and they pulled the content from somewhere else. In fact, I've looked up topics and everybody had one, they're all pulling from one article, (laughs) the same article, and they're just regurgitating it. There's a lot of that. That's bad content. But good content is immediately engages you you know that they're going to help you with the introduction or whatever, and you re- and you actually want to read it because it gives you something you couldn't have gotten any other way. That's good content. How it's many pieces? Here's an, a question from the audience: How many pieces of content to buy, create per a winner per se, trying to get an understanding of time and cost to create one? So what we do for our clients that on the B2B side, you can come out with an, a good solid article once a month, and, and that will be sufficient to get Google to pay attention and give you some recency and frequency. We often fill it in with some, what I would call more news-oriented articles, where we're pointing out something that's happened in the industry, and then we're, we're talking about it and giving a little spin on it based on the company's position. So you can keep that that churning and and moving through. Um, Good articles cost 500 or more. Uh, It's just the way it is, a good 1,000, 1,500 word article. That's if you have somebody who's really also checking the quality, making sure when it goes up, there's no typos and it all looks good and the images are proper and everything, which we do for our clients. So that's, I hope that answers the question. Oh, and timing. If a good writer can take a few days to write a good article, like three or four hours, and then um, going back and looking at it again, making sure it's all okay, and then maybe there's some revisions. We have very few revisions on the articles we write. Uh, Another question is, in my experience from the audience, in my experience, price really doesn't come into play unless it's outrageous. What are your findings regarding price first value and sales? One of the questions I ask in my research is, do you think their prices are fair? And I ask it that way because if you say, what do you think of the price? They'll always give you a lowball price. They say, oh, it's too high, blah, blah, blah. But if you say, if you think it's fair, interestingly, customers will actually include your profit margin and be okay with it. So if you're charging a price that's close enough to what other people are charging, you're going to be okay. Price is actually never as much of an issue as people think it is if the product or the service actually meets those desires and concerns and questions. If the customer is satisfied, I mean, how many times have you said, oh, well, it's a little more, but I'm willing to pay for it because it has this thing. I do it all the time. I'm remodeling my house right now and I'm really getting sick of buying, honestly. But it's you really will pay a little more to get that special something if they understand what you wanted, that special thing you wanted. Yeah, it's funny. I think that's really accurate. At the end of the day, it's never really about price. Um, And you I used to run a trade association and somebody, my salespeople come back, oh, they thought... $5,000 was too much. And I would call the CEO and I said, what if I asked you to write me a check for 5,000, but I'll write you a check for 30,000. Would that be fair? And of course, you know, who's going to turn that down? So, so it's not a question of $5,000. It's a question of how, what the rate of return is going to be on the 5,000. That's right. Um, uh, What is wrong with describing customers problems so they can identify with the problem and hopefully the solution you can provide? Say that again. What is what? What's wrong with describing the customer's problem? You mentioned in the book. Yeah. So it's not that you don't describe their problem. It's that you should describe their problem in two seconds. Da-da-da-da. Oh, here. Okay. 
but not da 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 da. We know, we know, we know, we know. This happens when marketers are so excited that they've learned what the problem is, and now they want to describe it in great detail. And the, again, as I said earlier, the buyer knows what the problem is. That's why they're going out and trying to find a solution. But when you just go on and on about it, it's like a man who's sitting on his roof and the the, the flood waters are rising and they're under the eaves and he thinks he's going to die. And you show up in a little dinghy to, to rescue him, but you don't rescue him. You just stay out there 50 feet away and say, you know, you look really miserable out there. I bet this has been one of the hardest things you've ever gone through. But you're not rescuing him. You're not saving him. You're not giving him what he needs. So you really have to get out of your own way and be totally focused on what the customer wants. And that's hard to do, by the way, because we all have egos. How do you train sellers to think like buyers? And why is former IBM leader Lou Gerstner uh, good at it? I remember he, he saved IBM. I worked for IBM as a consultant before Lou, during Lou, and after Lou. And before Lou and after Lou, every time that somebody at IBM made a diagram of some problem, IBM was always at the center. <laughs> And I'd always go up to the board and I'd say, no, 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 no. The customer's at the center and then everything evolves around that. He was a customer of IBM before he became the CEO. And while he was the CEO, he spent 40% of his time with customers. And by the way, Steve Jobs did the same thing. He would go to the store in the morning, the Apple stores, talk to customers and then go back to the company in the afternoon and try to get all of his people to do what the customers wanted. So yes, he was a genius, but he had the customer in his back pocket. So you just need to know these things. You need to understand what the customer wants. There is a mention in the book about developing reports to get customer and industry insights for a productive brainstorming and planning meeting, which you've talked a lot about uh, today. What kinds of information should be in the report and should you hire uh, should you hire someone from the outside, a third party to do this work for you? Yeah, I think you do need to have someone from the outside and not for the reason that you think. Um, what happens is people are pretty polite and they actually won't tell you how they really feel if you're the one who uh, they're talking about. So even for our own agency, a little while back, I had one of my staff interview our clients to do exact same research that I've done for years because I didn't want them to be talking to me directly because I knew they would hold back a little bit or worry about saying something. You know, they would sort of be careful about what they said. And they talked freely to this person. He did a marvelous job uh, and it worked out really well. One of the things you have to do is make sure that that person understands your industry well enough, especially on the B2B tech side. Engineers, for example, if you interview them and they start testing you and trying to see what you know and what you don't know, um, they often do that with me because my voice sounds younger than I am. Right. And I have to tell them I've been in tech for 40 years, just go for it. And then they open up, then they just it floods out because they're so excited that I actually understand what they're talking about. So you have to have somebody who understands the industry and they need to be outside of the industry. How many customers should you interview and how many questions should you ask? And, and we already talked about this, that you should probably do this by phone. Uh, and what are the must have questions? You can interview, as I mentioned earlier, five to seven people of a given type. So if you're selling to purchasing agents, you do five of those. And if you're selling to purchasing agents and engineers, let's say, you would do five of those as well. So you'd end up with 10 people total. And they would have uh, definitely have uh, topics in common, issues in common, and so on. Um, so it's five to seven people of a given type. And then the questions, I have about 10, 10 questions, I guess, but they, they include things like this. What do you think of the company? What do you think of the product and service? Um, what trends do you see in the market right now? What are your biggest challenges? 
if you were the CEO of this company tomorrow, what would you focus on or fix? Um, if you were looking for this in Google, what would you type in? So you get some SEO juice there. Um, I think that's most of them. Uh, that Those questions, just that, those questions will give you, they'll let you know what you're good at and what you need to fix. Yeah, I liked all those questions, especially the one on the SEO. I often forget to, uh, about that one. That's a good one to ask. How many customers, um, you you aren't very supportive of using surveys. Uh, at least that's what I, how I read in the book. Why is that? And when, if ever, are surveys valuable? How many questions should you ask in the survey? And what are some of the key questions to ask customers? The problem, problem with surveys is that they're created, they are questions that you've created with your assumptions in mind. So you're basically building a survey on what you think customers know and so on. That's one problem with surveys. So you never get outside of the box. You never understand what's really going on and what people are saying about you when you're not in the room kind of thing. Um, another problem with surveys is the best buyers don't have time. <laughs> so they don't fill them out. Um, the only time I suggest using surveys is sort of an A-B test, like, do you like this better or not? And, and you can do that anyway, with just with looking at your content and tracking your results, which we do with all of our work, where we see the most popular articles and things like that. Um, so we find out what people are really interested in. The only time you can do it is to supplement. Let's say, I mean, Siemens once hired me to, to do this work. And they said, you got to talk to 40 engineers. And I said, that's way, you don't need that many. You shouldn't be hiring me to do that many. Please, it's just a waste of your time. They insisted. I did it. And what I did is by the 10th interview, after the interview was pretty much done, I would ask that person, I'd say, well, you know, a couple of other people mentioned this. What do you think of that? So I was actually able to leverage some of the, the input I was getting without biasing the original results. Right. If you do these in-depth interviews and then you do a survey out to your wider market based on what you've learned, that could be helpful. And, and honestly, it would just be to satisfy the board of directors or people higher up in a corporation who don't think you can get bankable results from five people. And by the way, those 40 people said the same things that I got out of the first five to seven people. So. Yeah, I, I would do uh, a, a number larger than yours, but nowhere close to 40 and found out after between 10 and 20, everything was the same. Yeah. And I taught at Wharton and we would do uh, conjoint surveys of 100 when everybody was telling you you need thousands. And my boss was an expert in this. And it turned out that 100 surveys, the information was the same as anybody as a 3000 or whatever it is. So I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Um, you don't always have a positive view on focus groups. I don't either, by the way. Why not? I've seen so many of them been on the other side of the glass, you know, and I'm so frustrated because, um, first of all, again, the really good buyers that think through things and have a lot to say don't waste their time on those things, especially now. I mean, it's just gotten to be crazy. Maybe maybe if you do it on Zoom or something's different. The other problem is there's a group dynamic that happens. The people who come into that focus group leave with different impressions than they had before they got there. So the, the personal experience of the individual buyer is tainted by the focus group. And you also have a dominating character. So there's usually one person who talks more than the others and is very adamant about. And the, the retreat, retreating people are, they don't say anything. And some of the other people are like, oh, I never thought of that. So it just, it messes everything up. It, it gets you away from the individual mind of the individual buyer and what their buying journey is. I agree with you. The dominant person is always the problem for me. That person's always swaying everybody else. 
and then you don't get uh, good results. And the survey that we uh, talked about before just uh, reminded me that I one time raised money for an insurance venture and the insurance company did surveys too. And everybody's saying, oh my God, this thing's going to be a huge moneymaker. And, and essentially we got almost nobody buying this product and we couldn't understand it. And it occurred to me about nine months into it that we asked the wrong questions in the survey and we got the wrong information. But by that time, we had already yeah. been a million dollars plus into this. And I had to go to the CEO, the, the investing company and said, we all made a mistake, not just me, but even your folks when they did the survey. And it turned out we asked one question wrong and had changed the entire. So we changed the question. It turned out. Oh, you froze. Hope we can unfreeze you. Oh, oh great. You, I you were frozen. Uh, so question from the audience. I finished interviewing my customers and I built a solution based on the main problem they've had. I brought the solution back to the customer, received feedback and revised. One customer wanted to invest and is looking for an evaluation of the company. I'm stuck with the evaluation. What do, what do you recommend? One customer wanted to invest and is looking for an evaluation of the company. Yeah. Quite sure what that so means. I guess they're raising capital. And yeah, so probably the solution they built, how do they go and and show them that what they're telling them is based on customer feedback and you know good, good data information to support this so the investor will write that check. Well, you, you have to formalize, um, and honestly, this is why I got into, besides being so humiliated in that first sales call um, way back when, but I also got into this whole marketing thing because I love engineers. I, I really, I married an engineer. I love engineers. They, they, they're far more uh, wonderful for our society than anybody gives them credit for. And engineers have a hard time selling because they think they're supposed to sell. You're not supposed to sell. You need to educate. And you need to educate in a very professional way. So you're very confident. You've gathered the data. Here's what you found. And so you create a presentation or something formal enough so that people can see the logic, why you've done what you've done. You give them proof of what you did, what you went out, how you found the information, what your customers said. You go in depth into that proof. And that's how you get the financing. I tell you, when you go to a sales dealership, the guy is the, who's the most laid back actually has the most sales awards because you come in and they just ask the customer and they ask them a series of questions and they help figure out, oh, well, this is what you're looking for. They don't try to sell them anything. The customer sells themselves based on this funnel of questions that gets them to the right vehicle. And then the sales guy knows everything about that vehicle and is able to answer all their questions. Hence, it makes a simpler process. It's so stupid. If you come into it, if you're concerned about your child's safety, let's say, and you're buying a car. Yeah. And then you go in and the hotshot sales guy's talking about, you know, zero to 50 in two yeah. seconds or whatever. And you're just like, you're not talking to me. You're talking to some, you know, person out there. It's not me. That's just turns totally turns them off. Yeah. You haven't customized your pitch to the person you're talking to. Exactly. I'm always curious about customers that drop a company's product or service. What is the best way to get feedback from them that will be useful? You know, you lose a customer. How do you go and get useful feedback? So maybe you could even turn it around. I've done that for clients where I've turned it around for them. Yeah, I'm actually making some lost sales uh, calls for our client right now. I don't do it very often because we get the revenue moving enough where they don't even feel like they need it. But I have one client who's very thirsty <clears throat> kind of person. I, I talk, <laughs> he was telling me that he had a mentor who said that, uh, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And the mentor looked at him and said, I always look for thirsty horses. <laughs> and honestly, that's what marketing is. You're looking for thirsty horses. And this particular camp, this particular client is a very thirsty horse. He wants to learn all the time and improve and improve and improve. So I am talking to some of their um, lost customers. And it's again, it's an open conversation. It's harder to get them on the phone because they don't they didn't buy from you and they don't have anything invested. They don't care about your success. 
Um, but they will, if you take the same method of asking open-ended questions, you know, can you tell me what you were looking for? So you sort of, you don't just say, why didn't you buy? Because that's sort of defensive. You say, well, you know, what were you looking for? What problem were you trying to solve? Who else did you talk to? And then why did you pick the people that you picked? You know, what funny. could we have done better? I once had a client, uh, an accounting firm, that, you know, when I talked about these, uh, I doing this customer research and, you know, how I would interview them. And they go, oh, Mark, we already have this. And they share me this book. And it has the name of the customer and what they said. So you mean, like, the you're having the person ask the customer's name so the customer can't be honest with you. It's like asking your kids if you're a good father. Of course, you're a good dad. And then they tell your neighbor what a jerk you are. So I, I tell them, I'll bet you my entire fee that one of your three top three clients is leaving you. I tell the, every client that. And it's always the case, you know, and all of a sudden I find out this information and I come back to them. They go, oh, my God, we didn't. I had no idea. Well, of course, you weren't asking it in the right way. Hence, you weren't getting the right information uh, for That's it. Right. You write about how to set up and produce brainstorming and planning meetings. Please tell us what some of the ingredients and mistakes people make that precludes them from really getting useful results. Well, when I do these reports, I do a conversation report that has every word everyone said. We edit them and everything because people don't speak as well as they write. And this is a written document. The last one I just did, I just finished um, this last week, was 150 pages. And you would think, oh, geez, nobody's going to read that. Uh, -uh. The CEOs and the top management, they read every single word. They practically memorize it because it's like reading about your life. Again, it's what everybody says about you when you're not in the room. And these are important people. They're your customers. So they get that. I give them time to digest that. And while they're digesting it, I create what I call a summary and recommendations document where I basically, I don't bulletize what exactly what they said, but I summarize it in bullets. So it's easy to digest and easy to talk about. So we have a meeting where we discuss these findings and then I have my recommendations built in there. That works. Um, if you have that kind of meeting and somebody's sitting there with their arms folded and they're just, you know, like I, this, this must be Bob. He always says that kind of thing. And don't forget the conversation reports are completely anonymous. I split them up so that here are all the answers that we got for that question. I don't say who said it. Now, sometimes if people know their customers, they kind of guess or they try to guess. I never say, yes, that was Bob. I just say, well, doesn't matter because Eight people said that. <laughs> so right. it doesn't yeah. matter who said it. You know, everybody agreed that was the problem, right? So um, you just have to keep everybody on track and, and remember that the customer is the only true source of revenue. You can get money, you can finance, you can do all sorts of things, but your company is not a real company unless you're getting money from customers. So that's why they're so important and why you have to do this research. Uh, how much of a CEO's time should be spent with customers? Depends on the business. I mean, there are there are CEOs who, um, I mean, in, in my case, I talk to my clients almost every day. So I know kind of what they're thinking, but I still yeah. had their research done, by the way. And there were still things that were brought up that hadn't occurred to me. So, you know, even, the, even then. Um, I think it depends on the industry and the product. And I also think that if the CEO isn't doing it him or herself, then they can just hire somebody and at least get reports and understand what's happening out there. The trick is don't be afraid. I mean, part of the reasons people don't do this is because they're afraid of what they're going to find out. And it's not going to be in line with what they'd like to find and what they I want to do. I 100% agree with you on that. That's always the case. And the ones who cloister themselves in the corner office and never come out. I had a partner who was uh, president of American Express Credit Corp, and he made me sit in the bullpen. He said, you can't be in your office. You got to sit out here. And he would sell me. I mean, this guy ran a $23 billion business, but he never would sit in his office. He said, you got to be listening to everything. And I thought it was one of the smartest lessons I learned. 
Yeah, that's um, true. I've done a lot of marketing and sales department turnarounds, even in very large companies. And I insisted on just being one of the cubicles. Yeah, best way, best way he said learn, and he was right. Uh, many businesses look for strategic partners to sell the product. What does it uh, when does it make sense not to have your own salespeople? And what criteria do you suggest a company use when evaluating resellers and outsourced sales teams? That's an impossible question to answer unless you know exactly what the situation is, because it depends. Um, and, and again, there's this whole massive shift going on where people are avoiding salespeople. And what, if you're what not do you mean giving, by that? Well, they're just they're just not answering the phone if they think it's a salesperson. So the whole outbound calling thing doesn't work anymore. Oh, if you don't yeah, know of course not. calling. Yeah. So the idea of somebody pumping the phones and just getting, you know, playing the numbers doesn't work. It's broken. It is completely broken. The customer has said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to play this game. And yet people are still hiring salespeople and they're still getting them on the phones and they're giving them a quota and all that stuff. It's really sad. So the first thing you ask yourself is, do I really need salespeople or do I need people who understand the product really well and can answer the questions and these desires and concerns and questions? That has to be taken care of. That has That's a baseline. If you have that, you're going to make more sales. I agree with you. And, and it goes back to what you were saying before, which was that one company hired customer service people, not salespeople. And his sales I, are like this right now. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe that. In the, in the I worked a lot with money managers and they would um, pay these guys exorbitant amounts of money. I said, they're not doing anything. And, they, and the uh, CEO would say, what do you mean? I said, if, you have, if you're in the top quartile, it sells itself. And if you're in the bottom quartile, then no magic is going to make the person buy. So why not just put get you know a hundred thousand dollar a year people and give them a small bonus then pay them a piece of the assets? It's just crazy. Uh, and then they find out later that was right. <laughs> what what uh, does it make a difference when considering outsourcing sales and or creating partnerships if you are selling a product or a service? Like does that matter? Well, in my book, I talk about the four levels of scrutiny. So there's light scrutiny, medium scrutiny, heavy scrutiny, and intense scrutiny. Light scrutiny is see it, buy it. Doesn't cost much, 10 bucks or less. Um, only a couple of questions. No one else is involved. That's a completely different marketing method. That's a mass market kind of thing. Um, and medium scrutiny is like clothing or, or a small software package where you just you see it, you ask a few questions, maybe there's somebody else involved, but probably not. And then you buy it. And those are hundreds to a thousand or whatever. And then heavy scrutiny is there's a contract, there's a salesperson, uh, lots and lots of questions and other people are involved. Intense scrutiny is all of that, plus you get married. You know, there's this ongoing service or it's a big contract or something like that. Each one of those requires a different approach to how you set up your product. And, and by the way, one of the big problems that people have is they have one kind of business and then they decide to run another kind. Like I have a product client right now who's starting to open service, more opening a whole service arm. The rhythm, the structure, the people, everything is different. The sales process, the buying process, very different. So you have to make sure you keep them separate and you have a different type of person at the top to run that kind of company. So hopefully you know, that lot, answered your question. Yeah, no, it did. A, a, a lot of companies uh, rely because they can't afford it on um, distributors, wholesalers and so forth. Right. Uh, how do you train those people to go and sell your product? Uh, what's your take on that? Well, one of the things I've always said is that your wholesalers, your distributors, whoever you have, your outside reps, they're not feet on the street. They're mouths you have to feed. You have to keep them excited and keep them with information and have somebody who's like a customer service person who's always talking to them, making sure they're fine. And I just interviewed a bunch of dealers for a client and one of their complaints was they don't hear much from the company anymore. The company had been 
constantly asking them. They're not doing that. So you really have to be on top of them and, and be the one, the squeaky wheel that's kind of first of mind for them. And then they'll, they'll sell more for you. And that includes really good content and selling materials and um, all of that stuff. You know, we, we talked about this before we started the show, which was uh, oftentimes, especially entrepreneurial companies say, oh, I've signed a deal for this company to resell my, my product or service. How do you make sure you hold their feet to the fire because you're all excited and you think that their their salespeople are going to go gangbusters and what do, what do they do? What should you well, do that, about that? That moment when you've signed it and everybody's excited, you have to maintain that. It's like a fire that you have to keep lit. You've got to keep throwing wood on that fire. And, and if you don't do it, it'll just die out. They'll just, they, they just, whoever is in their face and giving them what they need and acting concerned, people respond to concern. They can really tell if you're concerned or if you're not. We know that when we're two months old and somebody's pinching our cheek and telling us how cute they are, but it hurts when they're pinching our cheek. And so we think, hmm, they're acting like they're concerned, but they're not really concerned. <laughs> this is all about love. This is all about comfort. This is all about taking care of other people. And so you have to do that with your reps. You have to be on top of them, taking care of it, giving them what they need all the time. I also noticed that um, a lot of times I would say to the clients, you sign this uh, agreement with them, but if you if if part of the formula for the salespeople does not include your product or service, you're dead. Um, because no matter what the CEO is telling you, or unless you set a minimum amount of sales that they have to generate, they're ignoring you. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, so I always like to ask the salespeople how are they how what kind of formulation that they have. So talk about uh, client retention. What are some of the best things to do to retain clients once you've already had them on board? Because I once had a, a client that provided a, a platform for money managers and lost fifty percent of his clients. And when I went around to find out, turns out nobody ever followed up with the clients once they once they used the platform. So what are some of the mistakes that people make in terms of getting people to keep using the product? This concern idea, this idea that this is about taking care of people, you actually have to go overboard. No matter what you're doing, it's not enough. So you have to be constantly, it's one of the hardest things about being in business. You, have, you can't sit back. You can't say, oh, well, this is all running, everything's fine. You really have to be constantly thinking, what else can we do? How can we leverage this? Oh, that's a good idea, but let's take it to the next level. Let's look for new tools. I have a guy who's who does nothing but app whispering for me because I can't, I don't have time, but I know I need it because I've been in tech so long. He's constantly looking out in out there in the universe and saying, what can we do? What tools can we do use that will take this up to the next level and be something else that our clients can use to get leads? You just can't ever rest on your laurels. So here's my final question for you. And by the way, this was great and super useful, uh, everything that you've said. How do you see sales changing in the next five to 10 years? I think AI is going to play a big role, um, real AI, not this sort of beta stuff that we're looking at now. But honest to goodness, um, some somebody, some some system that can actually help you make a buying decision and figure out what you're trying to do. That's going to be very interesting. Um, obviously, there's a lot of scary things about AI, too, but there's always scary stuff about tech. It's just the way it is. Um, I also think we we have to be very conscious of the fact that you can't automate caring. You actually have to care <laughs> and then put it into practice. So I think the companies that do that and don't let automation get in the way of your relationships with client are going to be okay, regardless of what the automation is and how things change that way. And don't forget, the other thing that's changed radically is everyone has access to Google and they think that the perfect solution is out there and they keep looking until they find it. That's what's really changed. And they can talk to each other. By the way, now that everybody wants to stay home and work and companies are having a hard time 
getting people back. Is that affecting sales as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's harder. It's harder to get in touch with people. I don't think it's affected this, the whole, the basic buying process as much as it has the working process. I think it's just a big problem for corporations, frankly. Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time today. You were awesome. Uh, I think everybody got a lot out of it. I know I did as well. And uh, I hope you'll do another book. I mean, it's been too long since you've done this book. And time to do another one based on what you see actually going to happen in the future. I think I will. I think I have another one in me. (laughs) Another evergreen book. (laughs) Well, we look forward to having you back. I hope everyone has a wonderful um, weekend and a wonderful holiday weekend. We will not have a show uh, next week because uh, it's Christmas weekend. And so we'll look forward to seeing you all the weekend after. Everybody, have a great weekend. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.